From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Chris Liu from the University of Virginia's Miller Center joins me to discuss the Senate's impending impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. And after that, I'm joined by attorney James Quandt to talk about the newly released film, Just Mercy. That's coming up on The Public Morale. Welcome to The Public Morality. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she will soon release the articles of impeachment of President Donald Trump so that the Senate can begin the trial that will either exonerate or convict the president on charges of obstruction of Congress and abuse of power. To get a sense of where we are, we welcome back Chris Liu. Liu was former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and is currently Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Chris Liu, welcome back to the public morality. It's great to be on. Uh, um, Give us a brief distillation. Where, where, where are we now in the impeachment process? Uh, and, 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 and be advised, whatever you say will most likely be uh, rendered obsolete by mid-sentence, but give it a stab nonetheless. <laughs> uh, well, the House passed impeachment proceedings uh, about, uh, well, let me say again. The House passed impeachment articles about four weeks ago. Um, uh, Speaker Pelosi has delayed sending them over to the Senate. Uh, She's been trying to better understand what the rules of a Senate trial would be before uh, she appoints impeachment managers. Those are the people that would prosecute the impeachment case. Uh, According to press accounts, it looks like uh, she will, uh, the House will vote on this on Wednesday and they will send impeachment managers, they'll they'll establish impeachment managers and then send the articles over. Uh, At that point, the Senate um, will take up impeachment first. Um, I mean, it sort of takes precedence um, over everything else. Um, and so I suspect that we will probably be in some kind of impeachment proceeding um, the beginning of next week or middle of next week. And then it'll go for it could go for several weeks. But I think there will be like any kind of trial. There will be motions that are filed. And one of the first motions will be to try to dismiss the entire proceedings without a full trial. I, I think that will fail. And so I think both the impeachment managers Um, which will represent the House uh, as well as the president's lawyers will be the defense attorneys, will give opening statements. And then I think the big issue after that is whether the Senate allows uh, additional witnesses uh, to be called uh, or additional evidence to be put on the table. As uh, you're reading the political tea leaves, I want you to briefly put on your prognosticator hat for just a moment. Um, When you go outside the beltway, is impeachment uh, resonating, or is it sort of in that partisan cocoon? In other words, how impeachment is viewed in, say, Seattle, San Francisco, may differ from how it's seen in Mesa, Arizona, and Oklahoma City. You know, look, I think everything in this environment is now seen through partisan political lenses. It's it's unfortunate, and that's whether we're talking about uh, the economy, whether we're talking about what's happening in Iran or impeachment. Uh, what I do think is interesting is um, there, there's a, a fairly wide majority of Americans 
who think that a Senate trial should include additional evidence. And I think people, to the extent that we are now in impeachment, whether you feel like we should have been there or not, uh, want there to be a full trial. People don't want things um, swept under the rug, again, whether you support the president or don't not support the president. And so, um, you know, look, people are divided in this country about whether the president should be impeached, whether he should be removed from office. But I think people want a full airing of the facts right now. Just, just think with that for a moment. Um, if uh, the Senate uh, proceeds the way uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, McConnell has suggested, and there are no calling of witnesses, how damaging is would that be to the republic um, in your in your view? Well, you know, look, we we the president has not surprisingly been schizophrenic on this over the last couple of months. Um, he has both said he wants a full trial, he wants lots of witnesses, um, and then more recently he has said, I want all these um, charges dismissed. Uh, he, he said when the House proceedings were going on that I'm not going to um, allow my officials to testify before the House because they're not going to get a fair shake. I'd rather wait to do that when they get to the Senate. Uh, now that we're in the Senate, he's not letting his officials testify. And there's kind of a funny, uh, although troubling, shell game being played. Now, Senate Republicans are saying, well, if you didn't testify in the House, you can't testify in the Senate. So, um, you know, I look, if the president wants to be, quote unquote, exonerated, uh, I'm not sure a, a trial that uh, has no new witnesses and where it involves the president essentially stopping anyone from testifying would really give him the exoneration he wants. That's not to say he won't take a victory lap afterwards, um, but I would think it would be in the nation's interest to have a full airing of all of this. Now, when I look at a state like Arizona, in, where, where, where you have changing demographics that I'm not ready to predict that it's, it's, it's blue, but it's certainly headed toward a shade of purple, um, um, you know, that, that state's sort of in play now. And, and does a senator like Martha McSally, who's up for re-election, um, I mean, can she, does she, will she like, can she vote with McConnell and, uh, and and risk being having that as an issue in the general election, or can she um, not vote with McConnell um, and, and ask for hearings and, and know that that may uh, get her primary? How, how, how do you how, how do senators maneuver through that? Yeah, I mean, look, it's not only Martha McSally. It's in Arizona. It's Cory Gardner in Colorado. It's uh, Susan Collins in Maine. All of these people are up for re-election. Um, Look, if, if I were to game this out for them and be, provide political advice, I'd say, look, you know you're going to, in the end, vote to acquit the president. Um, so you get kind of a freebie vote uh, to allow more witnesses. And you could say, look, I, I, I wanted to hear as much evidence as possible, so I want to hear John Bolton, the former national security advisor, testify. And then once you hear that testimony, then you say, well, based on that and the other new evidence, I'm still going to vote to acquit. Um, it, it makes it at least feel like you're trying to have a fair process. And so that's the advice I would give them. That being said, you know, we're in kind of an, an irrational world of politics. And I think any vote that is not seen as being fully supportive of Donald Trump uh, will will be, um, you know, will cause a lot of anger among his base at these people. So uh, but what you have seen over the last couple of days, you've, you've heard Susan Collins expressing a desire for more evidence. Mitt Romney, the senator from Utah yesterday, said he'd be interested in hearing from John Bolton. Um, so you really only need 51 senators to hear new evidence. And so you need four Republicans plus the existing 47 Democrats.
So, so, so the the notion of uh, uh of having new evidence based on based on the Senate rules is, is something that that's attainable. It, it is attainable, and uh, Senator Schumer, the uh, minority leader, the Democratic leader, I think will be eager um, to keep pushing votes uh, on new pieces of evidence because even if he doesn't get um, the Republicans to vote his way, um, he does, um, as you say, he he does put people like Martha McSally and Susan Collins in a challenging political uh, environment. Hmm. So what I'm hearing you say, based on your sage political advice, if you were uh, offering it to Senator McSally or Senator Collins, that you could have a profile encouraged moment without actually having a profiles encouraged moment. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's exactly right. Now, whether they'll do that or not, I have no idea. And, and I think that the, 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 um, the trick that Republicans will try to pull on this is they'll say, OK, fine, if you want to hear from John Bolton, that's great. But we also want to hear from Hunter Biden or Joe Biden as well. Uh, and the question is, is if that's where the vote is, whether Democrats allow that or not either. Uh, look, you know, all things being equal, um, you know, and, and Vice President Biden has already said, look, if he's subpoenaed to testify before the Senate, he will show up and do that. So uh, the question is, is whether you know, uh, we know John Bolton has said he will testify if subpoenaed, you know, whether uh, Mike Pompeo and Mick Mulvaney and others like that would testify. And if would they be willing to testify and, and would the president allow them to testify? Why, why is Vice President uh, Biden and Hunter Biden explain to our listeners, why are they germane to this process? Uh, they're really not. Uh, I'll be honest, they're not. I mean, you know, look, these are uh, false allegations uh, about corruption. Uh, involving Hunter Biden and this Ukrainian energy company that he served on the board. I mean, look, we can have a whole long conversation about uh, whether um, him being a board member was something that would have been available to anybody else but for that his last name was Biden. Uh, But look, there's a long history of nepotism, political nepotism in our country. So, um, you know, but this idea that somehow there was something corrupt about that that justified the president withholding aid to Ukraine um, I think it's ludicrous, and I think every anyone, every every respectable uh, media outlet that has investigated said there's nothing there. Even if there were something there, um, the proper way for the president to have to handle that was to have gone through official channels, whether it's the State Department, whether it's the Department of Justice. Uh, what he chose to do instead was to have his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, off on this kind of you know crazy fact finding mission where he's essentially launching his own personal diplomacy. And, it, and to be fair, this was never, Rudy Giuliani has been clear, this is not about corruption in Ukraine broadly. It's really about asking Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. It's using your official office for your own political purposes. That's improper and, and impeachable. Yeah, talking with Chris Liu uh, of the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Uh, Chris, j- just based on your responses, how do we change um, this binary narrative in that if you do it, I'm appalled and it violates the, the democratic norms. But if I do it, there's plenty of nuance and circumspection applied to my case. How do we get beyond that? Or is it possible to get beyond that? You know, I think, look, I, I think we should take this out of the context of what did Donald Trump do and should more broadly, uh, should a political candidate, um, uh, get either actively solicit or passively receive uh, 
assistance from a foreign government uh, in their reelection or their election efforts. And I think, you know, until we got to 2016, I think the answer was no, that that's absolutely prohibited. I worked on Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, 2012 campaign. If anyone from a foreign country had offered me a, uh, assistance in helping him win, I would have absolutely not only said no, I would have reported that to the FBI. And you can ask any campaign veteran about that. And so, you know, this norm has, and I think we all not only believe it's a norm, it's actually probably a law as well. Um, we don't think, we didn't think anyone would possibly cross this line until this president came along. And, you know, and, and again, whether you believe that they tried to seek assistance in 2016 for the Russians and just weren't successful, uh, you know, what they're doing here. I mean, they've clearly crossed over that line. And so, um, you know, I think if you ask most Americans this question in the abstract, they would say, look, you know, that that is a perversion of our democracy. Unfortunate in this partisan world we live in, the minute you ask that question and you attach Donald Trump's name to it, then both sides kind of, you know, retreat to their to, to their corners. You know, it's funny you would say that. I was watching the um, national championship game last night with Clemson and LSU. And um, there were some Clemson fans and there were some LSU fans sitting there. And it looked clearly like uh, they called offensive pass interference on Clemson when they could have scored a touchdown and took it away. And it clearly looked like it was a bad call. The Clemson fans were outraged, but the LSU fans saw nothing wrong with it. And, <laughs> and so you're laughing, which, and, and that's fine for sports. But we're talking about our Democratic guardrails, and that's not fine. I don't know how we get back to that. You know, look, um, we have the story in today's New York Times that Russia appears to have hacked Burisma, which is this Ukrainian energy company that HUD and Biden was on on the board of. And um, so whatever Russia did in 2016, which is we know they interfered in our elections, they're doing again in 2020. Um, that should outrage anybody that they might be digging up dirt to help the president. Uh, as offended as 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 we Democrats should be offended if you know, China or Iran, which both have incredible cyber capabilities, uh, started um, um, hacking information uh, to help a Democratic candidate. It should offend all of us. I mean, you know, the most important power we have in our democracy is the power to vote and decide who our elected leaders are. And we should make those decisions ourselves and not um, have those decisions influenced by foreign governments. Finally, um, as these impending uh, uh, trial comes up in the Senate, um, Will it have an impact uh, on presidential candidates? I'm speaking specifically about Senators Elizabeth Warren and, and Senator Sanders um, as, as they're trying to uh, convince voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. Will it impact? Will this impact them in any way? Yeah, and we should also add Senator Klobuchar to that as I'm well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yes. It would have been Senator Booker, but before he dropped out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, they're going to be in. They're going to be in D.C. Um, six days a week. Um, they're going to be jurors in a trial, and like jurors in a trial, uh, they're not allowed to speak. That doesn't stop them from, you know, doing press events after the trial is over. Uh, but they won't be talking to the people of Iowa. So, in some sense, that will hurt them. On the other hand, look, they're going to be performing their constitutional responsibilities, um, and I think this is a moment where um, they're not presidential candidates, but they're U.S. senators, and they have a responsibility to do that, and they all understand that. Um, you know, so that might hurt them in some ways. On the other hand, the fact that uh, a lot of these allegations involved a, a lot, the whole trial involves unfounded allegations about uh, Joe Biden and Joe Biden and, and, you know, the, the right wing spin machine will continue to kind of hash out those allegations, even if they're not true. That certainly doesn't help Biden either. So in the end, it's probably a little bit of a wash. 
Um, and the truth of the matter is, you know, the Democratic primary uh, does not look like it's going to be resolved in Iowa. So um, this is probably a momentary um, bump in the road for for all of these candidates. Mm. Chris Liu, University of Virginia Miller Center. I want to thank you, sir, for returning uh, to the public rally. Much appreciated. Always fun to be on. That was Chris Liu. Stay tuned as I speak with attorney James Quander about the recently released film, Just Mercy, here on The Public Morality. Welcome back. Just Mercy, the recent release film that tracks the saga of attorney Brian Stevenson, who took the case of Walter McMillan, an African-American man wrongfully imprisoned for a 1986 murder of a white woman and sentenced to death row. It is a gripping narrative that tells an uncomfortable truth about an aspect of the American justice system. To discuss Just Mercy and the larger critique of the justice system, I'm joined by attorney James Quander. Quander is a partner in the law firm of Quander and Rubain here in Winston-Salem. Be advised for any potential spoiler alerts. James Quander, welcome to the Public Morality. Good morning. You know, one of the gripping elements of Just Mercy, in my view, had more to do with what was not said in that the characters spoke with a body language that told a rather gripping uh, story that's apt to make one uncomfortable, which was, I believe, by design. And I was wondering how you saw that. I, I saw it in a number of characters. Uh, the prison guard was probably the first one, the most notable one that moves and transforms from uh, being just the typical uh, follow-the-leader prison guard and make life uncomfortable for anyone and everyone that doesn't look like him to someone who was empathetic um, towards the end of the movie, uh, and I think that, that that turn came as he was getting prepared for uh, his first experience watching someone be electrocuted, um, and it, you know, there's several other uh, instances like that with, with, with other characters and uh, and how their body language told this story. Hmm. Now, 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 from your experience uh, as a criminal defense attorney, walk us through what uh, Brian Stevenson, who was played in the film by uh, Michael B. Jordan, is going through. I mean, it's obvious early on. That we, we, it doesn't take long for us to figure out that his client, Wal uh, Walter McMillan, who's played by Jamie Foxx, is innocent. But this case uh, reflected a, a system where one is not innocent in, until proven guilty, but rather it seemed like one was guilty with a small, a slim chance of proving one's innocence. And walk us through something like that in, in your experience as a criminal defense attorney. Well, one difference I think is that's worthy of noting is that as a criminal defense attorney, I operate on the trial level. And Michael B. Jordan's character, Brian Stevens, Brian Stevenson, is actually uh, a habeas, what we call a habeas attorney, or uh, and or appellate attorney. And so, typically. With appeals, and we do some appeals, but, but the overwhelming majority of work we do is in the trial court. But one of the differences with appeals um, are, are that you, you, you don't usually have that intimate 
uh, interaction and relationship with your client. Your client is someone who you're inheriting a case that has been tried in a trial court, and it, it really is about reviewing and being intimate with um, the transcripts of the proceedings and uh, what objections may not have been sustained, what evidence came in against your client. This is a little bit different because you've got a client on death row, and those cases uh, are much more sensitive and much more uh, relatable uh, to appellate attorneys, um, although the appellate system typically is one of uh, you know, where the, 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 the attorney-client relationship isn't the same as on the trial level. Um, as a trial attorney, you know, as I looked at that movie, you know, one of the biggest fears that I've always had is to have uh, things like that happen to me as an attorney and ultimately to my client, where evidence wasn't turned over, evidence was manipulated uh, at a crucial stage, and there really is just no way when you're in the mix of getting prepared for a jury trial uh, and, and zealously defending uh, an accused on that level that you're going to necessarily find those things. W one aspect of this movie uh, that resonated was Brian Stevenson's ability to kind of know what he was looking for in the appellate record um, and then kind of follow uh, the, the, the pathway that ultimately led him to the um, information that, that, that got him the um, prior statement made by the, the, the main witness at trial, and that's what opened up the case for him. But that rarely happens, and ultimately um, at the trial level, we're typically put in situations that are, you know, high risk, high reward, but at the same time, you don't always have the bird's eye view that the appellate lawyers have. Now, for those um, who, who who may uh, think that um, this was a reenactment for Hollywood, just taking artistic license, I mean, here in Winston-Salem, we, we also have a very uh, uh, high-profile uh trial um, in our past in the case of Daryl Hunter was wrongly convicted in 1984 for the rape and murder of Deborah Sykes and where he was sentenced to life and spent what 20, nearly 20 years and even right. even initial DNA testing didn't absolve him of, of the um, absolve him of the rape but not absolve him of, of, of the murder and it took a while before he was exonerated in 2004 um, though not identical I mean, the, the Daryl Hunt case and that of, of, of uh, Walter McMillan do bear some similarities, though race is a factor, a black man killing a white woman. Speak to that, if, if, if you would. Yeah, I, I, I think, and I, obviously I wasn't around at uh, Daryl Hunt at the trial level, but uh, when I started practicing in 
levels racist or race, racially motivated, but it certainly could be deemed that way when you look at the end result. But ultimately, the system itself is uh, what gets consumed with the result that they want. And, and you know, we don't even have to address uh, what the motivating factor is, whether it's race or whether it's just solving a case. But at the end of the day, the system wants a particular result. They want a relatively easy result. And ultimately, um, the corners that get cut or the assumptions that get made uh, or the motivation uh, winds up standing in the way of what real justice is, which is finding the person who actually committed the offense, bringing them to trial, and gaining a, a fair and lawful con conviction. Hmm. Um, but what, what stands out in both instances as well uh, is uh, the community's uh, bipolar position uh, as to what happened and what should happen and what should go on. Very much at the trial level uh, in, in Daryl Hunt's case, the community uh, had bound together and were actively speaking out, uh, the black community that is, speaking out about what they saw the evidence to be and the shortcomings of the state's case, uh, and that was even at the trial court level. And so certainly when we fast forward 10, 20 years later and he's being brought back for uh, post-conviction relief, it becomes even more of a travesty that I think fuels some of the issues in our community, black and white issues in our community, when uh, folks have already known what went on at the trial court level really intimately, and now you're seeing DNA things and, and, and really minutiae evidence uh, being brought to light on the appellate level and still being you know, grossly ignored by the court system. Mm. Um, you sort of touched on your last answer, but I, I'd like to expand just a minute, but Reflecting not only uh, on the movie Just Mercy, but also in your experience as a criminal defense attorney, uh, do we have a justice system that is really congruent with reality? That's a tough question. And it, it, it's difficult because we have a justice system that I believe is the greatest justice system in the world. I mean, the fact that we're not uh, ruled and, and decisions aren't made unilaterally at one level and, and where one person is a judge uh, is the investigator judge and jury uh, of, of a crime um, it is it's a beautiful system the evolution of the system through case law and precedent being setting and case law changing uh, as society change uh, changes makes it uh, an exceptional system what what ultimately becomes the flaw of it is that the system is run not by a machine, but by people and by humans. And each uh, jurisdiction uh, that I've practiced in in my career, whether it's a different state or a different federal district, uh, they're all different. They're shaped by different, a different culture within the communities uh, that ultimately, um, to, to, to some extent, uh, stand for the final uh, result, uh, particularly in jury trials when you pull in from uh, 12 jurors from that, that area. Uh, and so all of their life experiences and their expectations about uh, information, uh, about police conduct, about criminal accused conduct and, and histories come into play as, they, as it shapes their decision on guilt or innocence. And, and, and I don't know that we can change that uh, other than being um, true to ourselves as individuals and, uh, and looking ourselves in the mirror and, 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 and at times being able to honestly stand up in the court and say, hey, I, I've got certain biases as a potential juror that are, that are going to make me uh, really not fit for this particular trial. But oftentimes we don't get that 
um, and uh, and because of because of that, you you you, you know, what, what we're left with is uh, pools at, at times of jurors that, that are uh, that, that look and think one way and lead and lend themselves to certain results that we've seen in, in these movies and uh, and in Daryl Hunt's situation. Hmm. James Quander, I, I want to thank you, sir, for for joining me today on, on, on the public rally. Much appreciated your insight, sir. Thank you for having me. That was James Quander. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Welcome back. In honor of the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., tonight's closing remarks come by way of an excerpt taken from King's final Christmas message entitled, Peace on Earth. We in America stand idly by and not be concerned, and an answer came, oh no. And I started thinking about the fact Right here in our country, we spend millions of dollars every day to store surplus food. Make it plain, make it plain. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge. In the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children in Asia and Africa, Latin America, and even in our own nation who go to bed hungry at night. It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny, and whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. And did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for a sponge, and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for the bar of soap, and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And then you go in the kitchen to drink your coffee for the morning. And that's poured in your cup by a South American. Or maybe you want tea. That's poured in your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you are desirous of having cocoa for breakfast, and that's poured in your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast, and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you're dependent on more than half of the world. This is the way our universe is structured. It is its interrelated quality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh,
Thank you.